you're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Open your Bible to Romans, the most important book in the Bible. I want you to open to the most important paragraph in the Bible. Just go ahead and do that. Uh, That would be Romans chapter 3, and that's where we're going to land this morning. We're beginning a new series today entitled Nailing the Gospel. And so the purpose of this series goes right in line with the new theme that we launched for the ministry year last week, Christ exalted over all. In this series, we want to exalt Christ over all counterfeit gospels. We want to exalt Christ over all substitute saviors. We even want to exalt Christ over all man-made ceremonial religion religious exercise. Christ exalted over all. We're going to anchor our study right here in kind of the first five chapters of Romans over the next six weeks. And um, one of the reasons we need to do this is because we need some theological precision when it comes to defining the gospel. Have you ever seen that movie, Princess Bride? How many of you, that's your favorite movie? Remember that line where he says, that word you keep using, I do not think it means what you think it means. I want to say that to so many of my fellow pastor friends. Let me ask you this. Could you provide a simple, concise answer to this question? What is the gospel? Could you do that? Could you detect when somebody is not giving the right answer to that question? Could you defend your definition of the gospel against attacks to it? By the time we're finished with this series, you are going to be able to nail the answer to those questions. How does God save sinners? How is salvation applied to people who want to be forgiven? What must a person do to be saved? How can you know that you know that you are a Christian? And what must a church teach is necessary for a person to be saved? you're gonna be able to give a great definition to those questions by the time we're finished. Another thing we're gonna do in this question, in this series, is we're going to answer the question, why are we, Harvest Bible Chapel, Protestant? What's the difference between a Protestant understanding of the gospel and a Catholic understanding of the gospel? How many of you ever wondered that? Are Are our differences minor or are they major difference. What, what divides us? And let me just say at the outset of this series, I realize I'm talking to people right now who might even identify as a Catholic, or maybe you love a person who is Catholic. Maybe you came from a, a background, a family tradition of, of Catholic church involvement. Um, I'm looking at some of the people right now who actually cheer vigorously on Saturday afternoons for a particular football team of a particular Catholic institution that has the eighth ranked football team in America right now. I'm looking at some people who actually play for that team and coach for that team and and some of you are otherwise employed by that university and you draw your paycheck from this particular it's 
Notre Dame. If you didn't know, in the, in the area here, hey, listen, all of that is great. I am grateful for the influence of, of Notre Dame and all the good that it does here. But if you are connected to Notre Dame in any way, you above all people should be able to define the difference between a Protestant understanding of the gospel and a Catholic understanding of the gospel. And listen, our differences are not just with people in the Catholic church. Our differences are with many, if not most, Protestant churches who are not preaching a biblical understanding of the gospel. They've embraced a gospel that actually can't save. And so we need to identify and detect when there's an incomplete or an inaccurate understanding of the gospel because many of our friends and family are going to these churches and hearing a form of the gospel that is not God's definition of the gospel. Many millennials especially are abandoning the biblical truth of the gospel, embracing a vague understanding of Jesus being one of many good spiritual guides to help you on your path and your journey into nothingness. I mean, that's, that's something we need to, to help our friends with. And so in order to do that, we're gonna have to look back into our past and we're gonna have to look back into like what happened about 500 years ago in this thing we call the Protestant Reformation. But here's my ultimate goal of this series. Over the next week, six weeks, if God answers my prayer, there will be dozens of people who have spent most of their Sundays in a church and have never been confronted with the claims of the gospel. You have heard a shallow version of the gospel. You may have believed an incomplete or an inaccurate definition of the gospel. And if my prayers are answered, you're gonna hear the biblical gospel preached and I'm gonna call you to believe it and to wrap your life around it and to be transformed and changed by it. If we're gonna nail the gospel, we're going to need a precise gospel vocabulary. Aren't you glad you came to church? We're gonna talk about vocabulary today. In this series, we're gonna do a little history, we're gonna do a little biography, we're gonna do a lot of theology, but we're gonna need a vocabulary if we're going to get our definitions right. And I want you to see the first of those Let's start with this word, gospel. You keep using that word. What is the definition of this word? Before I read the definition, I want you to see it in scripture. Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 16. I think I asked you to open to chapter three, flip back a couple of pages, and let's anchor it right here in Romans one, verse 16. The apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. What is this definition of the word gospel that he uses? Most of you probably knew that it means good news, but it's good news about something. It's an announcement, it's a herald, it's an exaltation of something God has done. And the good news is the good news of what God has done 
to save sinners. Now, if you are yawning your way through this message five minutes into it, it's probably because you don't think you need the gospel because you don't think you're that great of a sinner. But notice, everyone needs to be saved. It's the only power that can save a sinner. He he says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Listen, the gospel in and of itself is offensive. Do you understand that the man who wrote this letter lost his life because he proclaimed the gospel? And what he's saying here is, I don't care. It is that valuable. I am not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be ashamed to proclaim the accurate, precise definition of the good news and to announce the gospel. If you've never been offended by the gospel, I don't think you've ever really understood it. The gospel itself offends In order to believe the gospel, in order to proclaim the gospel, there has to be a bold commitment to it so that you are not ashamed of it. If you're ashamed of the gospel, ashamed to preach it or ashamed to believe it, it's offensive to you. And if it's offensive to you, the the temptation will be to shave off the hard edges of it. Not Paul, not even at the risk of his life. He understood the gospel defines, the gospel divides, and the gospel in and of itself creates a a decision for the one that hears it. And the only thing that will keep you from, the only thing that will keep you from softening the gospel is a commitment never to be ashamed of what it says and what it is. He goes on and says, it is for everyone. Notice, the gospel is the only thing that God has provided for every Jew to be saved. The gospel is the only thing God ever provided for a Greek to ever be saved. Every American, every Hungarian, everyone in the Czech Republic, every black, every white, every Hispanic, every rich, every poor, every Republican, every Democrat, every Protestant, every Catholic, every Muslim, every Hindu can be saved, but only if they believe the gospel because it's the only power that God ever gave to change the legal status of a sinner before God. That's the gospel. And notice it has to be believed. Listen, the Bible is not good advice to be followed. That is a problem with so many people when they come to the Bible. They're looking for good advice on how to live their life. They're looking for some good, you know, financial wisdom. They're looking for some, you know, encouragement on a bad day. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not good advice to be followed. The Bible is good news to be believed. And we have an inaccurate understanding of the gospel if somehow you are thinking, oh, that's what I had to believe to get into the kingdom of God and that's all it is. Listen, the gospel is not just what you have to believe to get into the kingdom. The gospel is what you have to believe to make all progress in the kingdom, Tim Keller says. The gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life and then you graduate on to some loftier, elevated view of theology. No, the gospel is the whole alphabet. 
And every time I hear the gospel, I am called to believe it and respond to it with faith and repentance, whether it's the first time you've heard it or whether you've heard it every day of your life. The gospel calls me to believe the good news, to reject what I already believe that is not true and believe the gospel, wrap my life around it. Let's define this term, Protestant Reformation. Now I realize it's Sunday morning and you didn't want to hear any multisyllabic words, but here's a couple, okay? Now listen, we talk about the Protestant Reformation, we're talking about a point in history, okay? So let's go back 500 years ago to October 31st, 1517. Now if you do the math, you realize that in 2017, on October the 31st, we, we celebrated the 500 year anniversary of what started the Protestant Reformation. I wanted to preach this series then, but we were in the middle of a prayer series and I didn't want to break out of it. So here we are, I got to it as quick as I can. So 500 years ago, there was this movement that changed the world called the Protestant Reformation. Let's first of all think about the word reformation. The root of that word is reform, right? Now, before something could be reformed, something had to be formed. What was that? That was the gospel that was lived and preached by Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. And then the early church uh, collected the teaching and the explanation of the gospel, and we have it in our Bibles. And so the gospel was formed. But even in some of the letters that were formed, there was a warning given to us. In Jude chapter three, the writer of Jude says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. The word contend, that's a soft word for fight. Fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice, the faith, that's not just a general like believing in God, that, the word faith there is the, the collection of everything we believe doctrinally is true about God and man and salvation. It's the gospel and it was once for all delivered. Notice the gospel doesn't need revision. The gospel doesn't need upgrades. We don't need a new version of the gospel. It was once for all delivered, past tense. It was delivered to those saints and it's our job to make sure what was delivered to them is still being delivered to us. That's why he goes on and says in the next verse, there are certain people who have crept in unnoticed. These were creeps in the church. And these creeps were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God to sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so the gospel was under attack and there had to be a defense of the true gospel. Paul wrote a whole book in the New Testament to the Galatian church. In chapter one of that book, he says, I am astonished. Paul is losing his mind at this point. How in the, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Don't say that to me. 
There's no other gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. It was under attack then, it was under attack 500 years ago, and it is under attack today. And so when we talk about the Protestant Reformation, we're talking about a gospel that was formed and became deformed and had to be reformed, which brings us to the word Protestant. Where's that word come from? Well, the root of that word is protest. Here's what happened on October the 31st, 1517. There was a Catholic priest or a monk. His name was Martin Luther. Now, if you just thought of a civil rights leader in the 60s, you're not tracking with me here, okay? Go back further, not to the 60s, but to the 16th century, 500 years ago. And Martin Luther was studying his Bible. We'll talk more about this in coming weeks, but he came to the understanding that that what the Bible taught about salvation and the gospel had been deformed in the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. By the way, the word Catholic just simply means universal. There were no other churches. There was just one universal Catholic church, just one church. If you were part of a church, you were part of a Catholic church. That's what it was until Martin Luther made a list of 95 protests that he had against the corrupted teaching of the gospel in the church. And he took his big list and he went to the Wittenberg Castle Church in Germany and he took a hammer and he nailed his 95 protests to the church. In a a sense, he made a Facebook post, okay? Uh, Because back in the day, the Wittenberg door was the Facebook of the time. He posted that along with Aunt Susie's, um, you know, bridal shower and the baby announcement over here. That's where you post, that was the bulletin board of, of the time. And so he just wanted to have a dialogue. He just wanted to start, let's have discussions about these 95 things. That was what you did back in the day. And, uh, but here's what happened. Some of the students of Luther found these things and they began to redistribute it, which was possible because about 50 years before this, a man named Gutenberg invented the printing press. Now, Gutenberg's invention of the printing press would have been equivalent to when Al Gore invented the internet for us, okay? That's how, that's how it changed information flow, okay? All of a sudden, they could mass produce this thing, and it went all over Europe, and people began to talk about these things, and it created a debate and a dialogue, and there was responses from the church. We'll talk about more of those later, but from that time on, there was a reclaiming, a recapturing, a rediscovery of the biblical truths of the scripture, mainly related to one doctrine. Here's that doctrine. It's the doctrine of justification. When it comes down to it, the difference between Protestant theology and Catholic theology comes down to our understanding of justification. And here's what the reformers proclaimed about justification. Scripture alone defines justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
for the glory of God alone. Now, back in the day, they spoke Latin. And so these became known as the five solas of the Reformation. The word sola in Latin means alone. And so here's the way they would say it. Scrip, sola Scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, soli Deo Gloria. And these became known as the five solas of the Reformation. Now let me say right here at the beginning, the church of the 16th century, just as the Catholic church believes today, believes that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. It is not accurate to say that Protestants believe that salvation is by faith and Catholics believe that salvation is by works. That is an inaccurate, oversimplification, simple for me to say, oversimplification of the issue, okay? Don't say that. If you've been saying that, stop saying that. You're, you're showing your ignorance about the issues, okay? Here's the difference. The Catholic Church believes that salvation is by faith and we believe salvation is by faith alone. The key word is alone. And to add anything to grace and faith and Christ and scripture deforms the gospel. And that's an issue over which we divide. You say, well, where do you find this in scripture? Thank you for asking. Just flip over to Romans chapter three. And I want you to look down at verse 20. We're gonna see all five of these solas in this one paragraph of scripture. Verse 20 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Underline the word justify, that's the critical issue. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Do you see the phrase there, the law and the prophets? Notice how law and prophets are capitalized. That was a title for the Old Testament. What is Paul saying? That you can find the doctrine of justification in the Old Testament. In other words, Scripture alone tells us how to be saved. Scripture alone tells us about this doctrine of justification. Verse 22, and the righteousness of God through faith, sola fide, in Jesus Christ, sola Christus, for all who believe there is no distinction. Why is there no distinction between Jew and Greek and rich and poor and male and female and Protestant and Catholic and Republican and Democrat and Irish and Wolverine. Why is there no, it's because of verse 23. Verse 23, because all Irish and all Wolverines and all male and all female and all Protestant and all Catholic have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace, 
sola gratia, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now, we don't need to we don't need a vocabulary word for propitiation. We don't need to define that because I'm sure you already know what that means. <laughs> you want to know what it means? It, it really means to absorb like a sponge. It means that on the cross, in Christ, Christ absorbed all of the wrath of God, all the hatred of God, all of the anger of God for my sin by his blood to be received by faith. Notice not everyone is saved. Who is saved? Who is justified? Only those who receive it by faith, sola fide. So this was to show God's righteousness. In other words, for the glory of God alone, solely Deo glory. It's to show something. It's to show God's glory, the glory of his righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. You say, tell me more about that. I'm really excited about God passing over former sins. Listen, that's just a reference back to Exodus chapter 12 when God sent the death angel and he passed over the sins of the Israelites when the death angels saw what? The blood on the doorpost. And so he's saying, see, it's the same message, Old Testament, New Testament. We are justified by his blood alone. In verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, this is awesome, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You get it? You interested in it? Some of you, this is lodging in your head. It's not making it into your heart. You know why? Because you don't think you need to be justified. You know why? Because you're justifying yourself. You think this message is for sinners, not you. And we don't understand what the truth of verse 23 tells us. We need a vocabulary lesson on sin. What is sin? According to verse 23, it's falling short of God's glory. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. Like an arrow that an archer shoots and it falls short of the target. It just never makes the target. That's us. We fall short every time. And our sin is falling short of the glory of God's moral perfection. It's falling short of righteous appetites. It's falling short of discerning wisdom. Over in Romans chapter one, we don't have time to look at it right now, but it tells us something else about glory. It says our problem, our sin causes us to exchange the glory of God for the glory of created things. That's what sin causes us to do. It causes us to glorify screens and actors and money and banks and careers and athletes above the glory of God. Sin at its heart is failing to consider God most glorious. 
See, some of you thought that sin was just actions that you perform. No, the reason that you sin is because you are a sinner. You can't help but not sin. It's the only thing you really do well. Because the indwelling sin in you gives you an appetite to do things that don't show God is most glorious in our lives. Sin is not just something you do, sin is something that indwells you. And here's the worst news about sin. Sin makes us objects of God's wrath. Did you notice the number of times that we referred to the word righteousness in that passage? It is to show the righteousness of God that um, back in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And so our problem is sin makes us not right. And to be righteous means to be in right legal standing before God. It doesn't mean that we just don't act right. It means that we are not right with a righteous God. That's a problem. And the Bible tells us, again, we could go back to chapter 3, if you look back up in verse 10, it says, there is none righteous, no, not even one. And the problem is not that we don't just act right, it's that we're not right with God who is holy. We mentioned his wrath. Romans chapter 2 says that because we're not right, we are actually storing up the wrath of God for the day of God's wrath, when his righteousness will be revealed. In other words, his righteousness will be contrasted with our unrighteousness when his wrath deals with our unrighteousness. You see, this is the bad news of the gospel. Before you can have any appreciation for your need to be justified, or to believe the gospel, you have to understand I am the object of God's righteous wrath. And I must have something done to my legal status before I can be right with this God. Most people, their default is that somehow, you know, I know I'm not right all the time. I mean, sometimes I'm right, but I'm just not all the time right. The problem is, is I've got this scale, I've got some right, and I got some wrong, and my hope is just that I'll be able to do enough right, maybe just squeaking it out like in a 51% level, and God will look at me and says, you did more right than you did wrong. That concept is completely foreign to the gospel. As a matter of fact, the gospel says that anything you could point to as right on your right side of the scale, the reason you did that was wrong. Your motive was self-righteousness. So everything you think is on the right side is actually on the wrong side counted against you. The Bible says there's nothing on this side of the scale. So what must happen in order for me to be right before God? You have to be 
justified by faith. What is that? Thanks for asking. Got this definition here handy right here. Justification is a judicial act of God in which he declares our sins pardoned and, here's the best part, Christ's righteousness belonging to us. This is mind-blowing to understand this concept. And this is where we have difference with our Catholic friends. What we understand about justification is there's nothing we can do to change our legal status before God. God has to change our legal status apart from anything we do. There's a lot of different ways to understand salvation. We use a lot of different terms for that. Probably the simplest word that we use in the church is the word saved. How many of you are saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you saved? Are you a saved person? That's a great term. Nothing wrong with that. It's a Bible term. So we, in, in salvation, we think of ourselves like a drowning swimmer who's going under, last breath, no hope, and, and the lifeguard races off the beach and at the last minute saves us, pulls us to shore, right? And so in the analogy, we're the drowning sinner and God's the lifeguard. Great analogy. There's another term we use in Scripture for salvation. It's the word regeneration. How many of you are regenerated? Yeah, if you raised your hand the first time, you can raise your hand the second time, okay? Same thing. So what is that? Well, in this analogy, in this word picture, we, are, we see ourselves like Mike in the video. No pulse, dead. And we have to have a heart surgeon cut us open, take out the old heart, and put in one that works. And so in that analogy, God is a surgeon. There's another word we use for salvation, adoption. How many of you are adopted? Have you adopted? You're like, okay, spiritually or physically or either way. It doesn't matter. You understand what I'm getting. And in this analogy, um, we see ourselves as an orphan and God as a loving father who brings us into his family and treats us better than we deserve. And we get all the inheritance and all the rights and the privileges of the family. When we think about justification, it's another word for salvation, we see ourselves as the guilty criminal in the courtroom of God and God as the just judge who declares this guilty criminal is pardoned completely. Until you see yourself as the guilty criminal, you can't have an appreciation for justification. Until you see yourself as the guilty criminal with a death sentence on him, you can't be justified. And so God is the just judge. Now let me ask you this question. If down here at the St. Joseph County courthouse, there was a judge in there that was pardoning all the guilty criminals that were coming through the court system, would you call him a just judge? No, you'd say that dude, it, he needs to be replaced. So how can God at the same time be both just 
and the justifier. Only if someone else pays the price. And so this is the good news of the gospel, that God himself sent his son, and on that cross, God declared Christ, the innocent, guilty. Was he guilty? No, but he was declared guilty so that I, who was guilty, could be declared, what? Innocent. And that's not just the best part. He didn't just declare me innocent, he declared me righteous. Not just neutral, but perfect, as if I had never sinned. Get it? Justified, never sinned. Because he treated Christ as if he did, even though he didn't. That is a just judge. And so we understand justice or justification as a judicial act that changes my legal standing from guilty to righteous before God. Justification imputes my sin to Christ on the cross as he absorbed God's anger and wrath. A lot of people, they they like to erase the parts in the Bible that God seems to be quite angry in these passages. And I'm so glad we don't have a God who gets angry anymore. Listen, God got angry at sin and he demonstrated it on the cross. If you wanna know how angry God is about your sin, get a new view of the cross. He tortured his son because God hates sin but he treated Christ as if he had committed my sin, and then he imputes my righteousness, he imputes Christ's righteousness to me. Imputation, not amputation, a very important theological word. I am imputed with my great, 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 great granddaddy's sin, his name was Adam, because he sinned, I sinned, but now I am imputed with the second, the last Adam's righteousness, And because he is righteous, I can now live a righteous life. Justification occurs at a point in my life that begins a lifelong process of sanctification. Now, this is key. This is where, again, Catholic theology, they kind of mix together justification, sanctification, not quite sure one begins and one ends. But in our understanding, justification happens at a point in time when you receive by faith the righteousness of Christ. And that point in time begins a lifelong process where I actually become what God has declared me to be. He has declared me to be righteous And that motivates me to now start acting right. That's sanctification. And a little bit every day, I become a little bit more like Christ. I do a few more right things because he's declared me to be right. So here's the question. At what point were you justified? It happens at a point. 
Listen, you don't have to know the day and the hour, the time and the place, but you ought to be able to look at a season or that, that summer when I was in college or when I was six and I was feeling guilty over my sin and I talked to my mom, she knelt by my bed and showed me the gospel and I prayed. And, or, or maybe that I did that a thousand times and that didn't do anything. But then when I was 42 and, and I came to Harvest Bible Chapel and somebody showed me the real gospel and I repented and believed and I don't know what all that religious ceremony stuff was I did before, but this was the point and I'm telling the stories of many of you out there. But some of you are scratching your head going, I don't know when that happened. I don't know if that's ever happened. I've got an, a suggestion. How about right now? Today could be your day. This could be your point of justification whereby your legal standing before God is changed. What has to happen? Thank you for asking. It's one, this is the last thing. Justification is obtained by faith alone, in Christ alone, sola fide, in sola Christus. You may have put your faith in your good works. You may have put your faith in your sacraments. You may have put your faith in your Bible knowledge. You may have put your faith in your mommy. But is your faith in Christ alone. And if you've never done that, you can do that right now. As a matter of fact, why don't we all stand together? And as we stand, bow your heads. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Could you just pretend for the next 60 seconds you're the only person in this room? Could you just pretend that you're in the courtroom of God? He is a just judge. You're standing before him. Do you have confidence that you are in right legal standing before God? That your crimes have been pardoned, that your sins have been forgiven? Is your faith in your good moral character, your good name, your religious performance, your Bible knowledge, your pedigree, your sacraments, or is your faith in Christ alone? Are you, have you embraced his substitutionary atonement on the cross in your place? If not, you can do that now. First thing is you have to reject faith in yourself and then embrace Christ by faith. You can pray and say, Lord, I, I've been religious, I've been moral, I've tried to be good, but I realize I am not right before you as a righteous God. I receive by faith what Christ has done for me. Lord, I do pray that you would give clarity to every person here that there is a point and every person would walk out of here today with confidence knowing that they've been justified by a just God. And Lord, would you strip away the layers of man-made ceremonial religion that so often cloud us to the true gospel. Thank you for the work of Christ on that cross. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.